Section 15 of Passages from the Life of a Philosopher. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Passages from the Life of a Philosopher by Charles Babbage. Section 15 Recollections of Wollaston, Davy, and Rogers in eighteen twenty six one of the secretaryships of the royal society became vacant dr wollaston and several others of the leading members of the society and of the council wished that i should be appointed this would have been the more agreeable to me because my early friend herschel was at that time the senior secretary this arrangement was agreed to by sir h davy and i left town with the full assurance that i was to have the appointment in the meantime sir h davy summoned a council at an unusual hour eight o'clock in the evening for a special purpose namely some arrangement about the treasurer's accounts after the business relating to the treasurer was got through sir h davy observed that there was a secretaryship vacant and he proposed to fill it up sir humphrey davy's discourses Dr. Wollaston then asked Sir Humphrey Davy if he claimed the nomination as a right of the President, to which Sir H. Davy replied that he did, and then nominated Mr. Children. The President, as President, has no such right, and even if he had possessed it, he had promised Mr. Herschel that I should be his colleague. There were upright and eminent men on that council, yet no one of them had the moral courage to oppose the President's dictation, or afterwards to set it aside on the ground of its irregularity. A few years after, whilst I was on a visit at Wimbledon Park, Dr. and Mrs. Somerville came down to spend the day. Dr. Somerville mentioned a very pleasant dinner he had had with the late Mr. John Murray of Albemarle Street, and also a conversation relating to my book on the decline of science in England. Mr. Murray felt hurt at a remark I had made on himself, whilst criticising a then unexplained job of Sir Humphrey Davies. Dr. Somerville assured Mr. Murray that he knew me intimately, and that if I were convinced that I had done him an injustice, nobody would be more ready to repair it. A few days after, Mr. Murray put into Dr. Somerville's hands papers explaining the whole of the transaction. These papers were now transferred to me. On examining them, I found ample proof of what I had always suspected. The observation I had made which pained Mr. Murray fell to the ground as soon as the real facts were known, and I offered to retract it in any suitable manner. One plan I proposed was to print a supplemental page and have it bound up with the remaining copies of the decline of science. Mr. Murray was satisfied with my explanation, but did not wish me to take the course I proposed, at least not at that time. Various objections may have presented themselves to his mind, but the affair was adjourned with the understanding that at some future time I should explain the real state of the facts which had led to this misinterpretation of Mr. Murray's conduct. Explanation of that job The true history of the affair was this. Being on the council of the Royal Society in 1827, I observed in our accounts a charge of £381, five shillings, as paid to Mr. Murray for 500 copies of Sir Humphrey Davies' discourses. 
I asked publicly at the council for an explanation of this item. The answer given by Dr. Young and others was that the council had agreed to purchase these volumes at that price in order to induce Mr. Murray to print the President's speeches. To this I replied that such an explanation was entirely inadmissible. I then showed that even allowing a very high price for composing, printing, and paper, if the council wished to print five hundred copies of those discourses, they could have done it themselves for a hundred and fifty pounds, at the outside. I could not extract a single word to elucidate this mystery, about which, however, I had my own ideas. It appeared by the papers put into my hands that Sir Humphrey Davy had applied to Mr. Murray, and had sold him the copyright of the discourses for five hundred guineas, one of the conditions being that the Royal Society should purchase of him five hundred copies at the trade price. Mr. Murray paid Sir H. Davy the five hundred guineas in three bills at six, twelve, and eighteen months. These bills passed through Drummond's, Sir H. Davy's banker, and I have had them in my own hands for examination. Thus it appears that Mr. Murray treated the whole affair as a matter of business, and acted in this purchase in his usual liberal manner. I have had in my hand a statement of the winding up of that account, copied from Mr. Murray's books, and I find that he was a considerable loser by this purchase. Sir H. Davy, on the other hand, contrived to transfer between three and four hundred pounds from the funds of the Royal Society into his own pocket. Footnote see decline of science in england page one hundred and five volume eight eighteen thirty end footnote it was my determination to have called for an explanation of this affair at the election of our president and officers at our anniversary on the thirtieth of november if sir h davy had been again proposed as president in eighteen twenty seven the thaumatrope one day Herschel, sitting with me after dinner, amusing himself by spinning a pear upon the table, suddenly asked whether I could show him the two sides of a shilling at the same moment. I took out of my pocket a shilling, and holding it up before the looking-glass, pointed out my method. No, said my friend, that won't do. Then spinning my shilling upon the table, he pointed out his method of seeing both sides at once. The next day I mentioned the anecdote to the late Dr. Fitton, who a few days after brought me a beautiful illustration of the principle. It consisted of a round disc of card, suspended between the two pieces of sewing silk. These threads being held between the finger and thumb of each hand, were then made to turn quickly, when the disc of card, of course, revolved also. Upon one side of this disc of card was painted a bird, upon the other side an empty bird-cage on turning the thread rapidly the bird appeared to have got inside the cage we soon made numerous applications as a rat on one side and a trap upon the other etc it was shown to captain cater dr wollaston and many of our friends and was after the lapse of a short time forgotten the thaumatrope its retribution Sometimes after, during dinner at the Royal Society Club, Sir Joseph Banks being in the chair, I heard Mr. Barrow, then secretary to the Admiralty, talking very loudly about a wonderful invention of Dr. Paris, the object of which I could not quite understand. It was called the thaumatrope. 
and was said to be sold at the royal institution in albemarle street suspecting that it had some connection with our unnamed toy i went the next morning and purchased for seven shillings and sixpence a thaumatrope which i afterwards sent down to slough to the late lady herschel it was precisely the thing which her son and dr fitton had contributed to invent which amused all their friends for a time and had then been forgotten there was however one additional thaumatrope made afterwards it consisted of the usual disc of paper one side was represented a thaumatrope the design upon it being a penny piece with the motto how to turn a penny on the other side was a gentleman in black with his hands held out in the act of spinning a thaumatrope the motto being a new trick from paris after my contest for finsbury was decided mr rogers the banker and the brother of the poet who had been one of my warmest supporters proposed accompanying me to the hustings at the declaration of the poll he had also invited a party of some of the most influential electors of his district to dine with him in the course of the week in order that they might meet me and consider about measures for supporting me at the next opportunity the poet and philosopher at a crossing on a cold drizzling rainy day in november the final state of the poll was declared mr rogers took me in his carriage to the hustings and caught a cold which seemed at first unimportant on the day of the dinner when we met at mr rogers's who resided at islington he was unable to leave his bed miss rogers his sister who lived with him and his brother the poet received us quite unconscious of the dangerous condition of their relative who died the next day thus commenced a friendship with both of my much valued friends which remained unruffled in the slightest wave until their lamented loss miss rogers removed to a house in the regent's park in which the paintings by modern artists collected by her elder brother and increased by her own judicious taste were arranged the society at that house comprised all that was the most eminent in literature and in art the adjournment after her breakfast to the delightful veranda overlooking the park still clings to my fading memory and the voices of her poet brother of geoffrey and of sydney smith still survive in the vivid impressions of their wisdom and their wit i do not think the genuine kindness of the poet's character was sufficiently appreciated i occasionally walked home with him from parties during the first years of our acquaintance in later years when his bodily strength began to fail i always accompanied him though sometimes not without a little contest i have frequently walked with him from his sister's house in the regent's park to inns owned in st james's place and he has sometimes insisted upon returning part of the way home with me on one of those occasions we were crossing a street near cavendish square a cart coming rapidly round the corner i almost dragged him over as soon as we were safe the poet said very much as a child would there now that was all your fault you would come home with me and so i was nearly run over however i found less and less resistance to my accompanying him and only regretted that i could not be constantly at his side on those occasions soon after the publication of the economy of manufactures mr rogers told me that he had met one evening at a very fashionable party a young dandy with whom he had had some conversation 
the poet had asked him whether he had read that work to this his reply was yes it is a very nice book just the kind of book that anybody could have written how to live for ever one day when i was in great favour with the poet we were talking about the preservation of health he told me he would teach me how to live for ever for which i thanked him in a compliment after his own style rather than in mine i answered only embalm me in your poetry and it is done mr rogers invited me to breakfast with him the next morning when he would communicate the receipt we were alone and i enjoyed a very entertaining breakfast the receipt consisted mainly of cold ablutions and the frequent use of the flesh brush mr rogers himself used the latter to a moderate extent regularly three times every day before he dressed himself when he dressed for dinner and before going to bed about six or eight strokes of the flesh brush completed each operation we then adjourned to a shop where i purchased a couple of the proper brushes which i used for several years and still use occasionally with i believe considerable advantage rapidity of composition once at mr rogers's table i was talking with one of his guests about the speed with which some authors composed and the slowness of others i then turned to our host and much to his surprise inquired how many lines a day on the average a poet usually wrote my friend when his astonishment had a little subsided very good-naturedly gave us the result of his own experience he said that he had never written more than four lines of verse in any one day of his life footnote i am not quite certain that the number was four but i am absolutely certain that it was either four or six End footnote. this i can easily understand for mr rogers's taste was the most fastidious as well as the most just i ever met with another circumstance also i think contributed to this slowness of composition an author may adopt either of two modes of composing he may write off the whole of his work roughly so as to get upon paper the plan and general outline without attending at all to the language he may afterwards study minutely every clause of each sentence and then every word of each clause or the author may finish and polish each sentence as soon as it is written this latter process was i think employed by mr rogers at least in his poetry he then told us that southey composed with much greater rapidity than himself as well in poetry as in prose of the latter southey frequently wrote a great many pages before breakfast once at a large dinner party mr rogers was speaking of an inconvenience arising from the custom then commencing of having windows formed of one large sheet of plate glass he said that a short time ago he sat at dinner with his back to one of these single panes of plate glass it appeared to him that the window was wide open and such was the force of imagination that he actually caught cold different effects of imagination it so happened that i was sitting just opposite to the poet hearing this remark i immediately said dear me how odd it is mr rogers that you and i should make such a different use of the faculty of imagination when i go to the house of a friend in the country and unexpectedly remain for the night having no nightcap i should naturally catch cold but by tying a bit of pack thread tightly round my head i go to sleep imagining that i have a nightcap on 
Consequently, I catch no cold at all. This sally produced much amusement in all around, who supposed I had improvised it. But, odd as it may appear, it is a practice I have often resorted to. Mr. Rogers, who knew full well the respect and regard I had for him, saw at once that I was relating a simple fact, and joined cordially in the merriment it excited. In the latter part of Mr. Rogers's life, when, being unable to walk, he was driven in his carriage round the Regent's Park, he frequently called at my door, and, when I was able, I often accompanied him in his drive. On some one of these occasions, when I was unable to accompany him, I put into his hands a parcel of proof-sheets of a work I was then writing, thinking they might amuse him during his drive, and that I might profit by his criticism. Some years before I had consulted him about a novel I had proposed to write solely for the purpose of making money to assist me in completing the analytical engine. I breakfasted alone with the poet, who entered fully into the subject. I proposed to give up a twelve-month to writing the novel, but I determined not to commence it unless I saw pretty clearly that I could make about five thousand pounds by the sacrifice of my time. The novel was to have been in three volumes, and there would probably have been reprints of another work in two volumes. Both of these works would have had graphic illustrations. The poet gave me much information on all the subjects connected with the plan, and amongst other things, observed that when he published his beautifully illustrated work on Italy, that he had paid nine thousand pounds out of his own pocket before he received any return for that work. End of section 15